Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash ety. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. Welcome to this Pure Voice Talks on Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professor Perry Elliott. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello and welcome. My name is Perry Elliott. I'm director of the UCL Institute for Cardiovascular Science and a consultant cardiologist at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London. I'm here today to talk to you about the recognition, the diagnosis and the management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So perhaps we can start with the definition of this disease. So as a clinician, we define this disease very simply by the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy, which is not explained by abnormal loading conditions, which in everyday practice means not explained by hypertension or aortic valve disease. But whilst that's a very useful starting point in the diagnosis, we've recognised now for decades that this is in fact a family of diseases. We recognised in the late 1980s that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was caused by mutations in the genes which encode cardiac sarcomeric proteins. And we now know that this accounts for maybe, I don't know, two-thirds of cases. But we also recognise that hidden within the populations that we see in our clinics, patients have other disorders, some of which are genuinely very rare. But some of these things are rare because we don't look for them. The classic example of that is cardiac amyloidosis, which we now recognise in maybe 5 or even 10% of older patients who have a clinical diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now, as cardiologists, I think we tend to focus on the important complications of this disease, most notably sudden cardiac death, but also progressive heart failure and atrial fibrillation and stroke. If you look over a lifetime, of course, sudden cardiac death, ventricular arrhythmia is important. But actually, as you can see from this slide, we, this is a chronic disease which progresses over time. And actually, in the, in, over a lifetime, the major problems that we see are progressive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and stroke. I think it's also important to recognise that it's not just simply about these important complications. Because hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has a significant impact on individuals, their interaction with their families and with society. It may interfere with their employability, their ability to get life insurance, their personal relationships. It will have a psychological impact on themselves, but also on other family members. So this is a disease which affects every aspect of someone's life. Now, a question that we're, we're often trying to address is actually how common this condition is. And that for decades, we've done a number of different kinds of studies. And this magic number of one in 500 of the population is a recurrent theme. Now, that comes from screening young, healthy individuals. And if you do that, you will find that maybe around one in 500 of them will have unexplained left ventricular hypertrophy. But when we look at people who are in the system, if you like, so patients who are actually in hospital or being seen by a general practitioner, the number is more three to four per 10,000. So how do we explain that gap? Well, some of it is probably down to a lack of recognition. 
Some of it, I think, has been down to a historical reluctance to use the term hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I think we see that in estimates within the population which are rising. So the prevalence within electronic health records, as in this study from the United Kingdom, suggests that the number of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has increased by as much as 50 or 60%. Can that be true? I don't think so. But I think what it does reflect is that cardiologists, other physicians, general practitioners are far more, far more likely to use that term if they see unexplained hypertrophy. So how do, do we as cardiologists diagnose this condition? And, and it's, it's at one level very simple. It's about being systematic. It's using what I call old-fashioned clinical method. Why is this person sitting there in front of you? Is it because they've got a family history of disease? Or is it because they've got a particular symptom? Or is it because they've got an incidental finding of an abnormal ECG? We then go on to define what we see on imaging. So as I've said, if you see unexplained thickening, that's all you need to make a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We often recommend that you look for so-called associated traits. So clues from the tests that you've done or from the history or from physical examination, which may tell you about the underlying cause of the condition. And then driving down on that underlying cause, because it's important with current therapies, but it's going to become even more important in the future as we develop etiology-driven treatments for heart muscle disease. So just to try to anchor that in a, in a, in a real person. So this is a 40-year-old woman who for five years or more has struggled getting up two flights of stairs. In fact, it's almost become normal for her to be breathless when she goes up the stairs. She gets occasional dizziness when she walks up the stairs, occasional palpitations. But it's not until she has a blackout when running for a bus and seeks um, advice from her GP that the penny starts to drop about the fact that she may in fact have a cardiac condition. Now, what you see on this slide is, is, a, is an old-fashioned slide describing all of the classical features of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And whilst I think this is a dying art, the detection of a characteristic murmur, again, is one of those key findings. In a 40-year-old woman with significant cardiac symptoms, this woman should be referred for further investigations. The first line is the electrocardiogram. And there's nothing particularly specific about ECG. This is an ECG that you see not infrequently, left ventricular hypertrophy, repolarization abnormality. But in context, with a young, symptomatic woman, you're already 30-40% of the way towards your diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy just simply from this ECG. She's referred for cardiac imaging, and what you see here is classical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with asymmetry, asymmetric hypertrophy of the interventricular septum. And here, if we hone in on the mitral valve, you can just about see that the mitral valve leaflets are tending to move forwards during systole, and you can see some turbulence in the outflow tract. But on the right, you see what happens with continuous wave Doppler when we get her to perform a Valsalva, and she starts to develop obstruction. And indeed, when she performed a really good Valsalva, she managed to get an outflow tract gradient of 85 millimeters of mercury. So we have our diagnosis. She has symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So how do we diagnose this? Be systematic and use good clinical method. Listen to the patient, examine the patient, and in the first line of investigation, that combination of an ECG and cardiac imaging will lead you to that diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. 
In the second presentation, we'll talk about the management of this disease, particularly focused on the management of symptoms caused by outflow tract obstruction. Hello, my name is Perry Elliott. I am director of the UCL Institute for Cardiovascular Science in London and a consultant cardiologist at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. And this is the second of our talks on the diagnosis and management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So in our first presentation, we met our patient who was a 40-year-old woman with obstructive disease who'd had an episode of syncope. And in that talk, I illustrated how we use cardiac imaging to make the diagnosis. Now, this is another example of a really obvious example of how we make this diagnosis. And here you see a 2D echocardiogram showing gross hypertrophy of the interventricular septum. In this case, there really is no doubt about the diagnosis. Increasingly, we combine ultrasound, echocardiography, with cardiac MRI. And again, you see here two very clear examples of the, of the disease. On the left, severe asymmetric septal hypertrophy, and on the right, a different pattern of hypertrophy, which is sometimes difficult to see on echocardiography, which is hypertrophy involving the left ventricular apex. But of course, we get more from imaging than just simply a description of the wall thickness. Echocardiography remains, I think, still our principal tool for interrogating the physiology of the ventricle. So for detecting outflow tract obstruction, as we saw in our example, or in assessing systolic function or diastolic function. We can also, using echo, look at regional contractility. And what you see on the left here is what we call a bullseye image, looking at global longitudinal strain, showing a wall motion defect in the posterolateral aspect of the left ventricle. If we combine this with cardiac MRI, we see that this area of hypokinesia is associated with an area of scar. And in context, this is a middle-aged male with concentric hypertrophy and a posterior wall scar. This combination is very suggestive of one of the phenocopies for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which in this case is Fabry's disease. Here you see a completely different pattern. Here we have concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, impaired systolic function. And in this case on the right, the global longitudinal strain map shows this global reduction in strain, except at the left ventricular apex. And this pattern in context is very suggestive of cardiac amyloidosis. So what I'm showing you here are, if you like, the associated imaging traits. The regionality of the disease, the presence of concentric hypertrophy, the presence of impaired systolic function. But there may be other associated traits. These can be electrocardiographic. One of the most important is heart block, for example. Or they may just simply be physical findings. Here's another example of a 79-year-old male, has a cardiac history, has had a myocardial infarct, and then presents with impaired systolic function and heart block. And the focus was very much on the heart block. And on the echo, you see that he has a large wall motion abnormality anteriorly from his previous infarct. But what was missed was that the posterior wall was thick. And when you go back to the patient and talk to him, he'll tell you that he's had bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. He's got wasting of the thena eminence, which you can see in the slide. This guy has cardiac amyloidosis. Driving down to etiology. 
That's really what we should be trying to do, moving beyond simply a description of the morphology to determine the etiology. And in addition to our imaging tools, there are a number of other tools which we should probably be using more frequently in screening. So at least in male patients looking for Fabry disease in the male who's above 40 years of age with unexplained hypertrophy. And this can be done simply by measuring alpha-galactosidase in plasma. Thinking about causes of amyloidosis, and it's really important to rule out AL amyloidosis. This is a malignancy. This should be high on the differential diagnostic list in middle-aged patients or older patients with unexplained hypertrophy. But to return to the case that I presented in the first presentation, so we have a 40-year-old woman who has no features of systemic disease. Remember, she had no family history to help us. We do some of these routine screening tests and they were negative. So now we're thinking about, well, does she have what the majority of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have, which is a mutation in a sarcomeric gene? And in this particular instance, we performed a diagnostic panel and she carries a pathogenic mutation in one of the two most common genes that are implicated in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, namely myosin binding protein C. So we have our diagnosis. We have sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. How do we go on to manage this lady? Again, I'm a great believer in trying to keep things simple. Simple for the physician, simple for the patient. This slide shows my general approach to my discussion with the patient on management. So we talk about the symptoms, their cause, and how we can treat them. We talk about the risk of disease-related complications. Yes, sudden cardiac death, but also particularly stroke risk. And then we discuss the impact of this disease on the family, on their lifestyle, on their kids, or their desire to have children. And whilst of these, these things are, of course, all related to one another, they do have discrete conversations. And I think it's useful to break up the dialogue with the patient in this way. So in our approach to risk in this case, we discussed this lady's sudden death risk, her risk of AF and of heart failure. Now, when assessing her sudden death risk, as part of our routine evaluation, we performed a halter monitor. Now, remember, she had no bad family history. Yes, she'd had syncope, but she'd had syncope in the context of outflow tract obstruction. Yes, she had hypertrophy, but it wasn't particularly severe. But on this slide, you see that she was getting runs of non-sustained VT. So she has one, if you like, conventional risk factor. But if you actually calculate her risk, her five-year risk using the ESC tool that's been available for this purpose since 2014, if you ignored the syncope, was approaching 6%. If you include the syncope, it was approaching 12%. And for this reason, we had a conversation with her about prophylactic ICD implantation. Interestingly, despite everything that we told her, she elected at this point in time not to go for a defibrillator. Her principal concern was the fact she could not get up the stairs, that running for a bus had caused her to black out. So the focus of her management moved very much towards the management of her symptoms related to obstruction. So what did we do? Well, we tried conventional first-line therapy with a beta blocker. Unfortunately, she was intolerant of that. We tried disapyramide, which is a class one antiarrhythmic, which has negative inotropic effects that are exploited for this purpose of reducing obstruction. She was intolerant of that. We then moved to verapamil, which, although tolerated, was largely ineffective. So this takes us to a scenario that we often encounter in patients with significant 
symptomatic obstruction, which is, should we be considering this person for septal reduction therapy, either in the form of surgery, septal myectomy, or in the form of alcohol ablation using a transcatheter approach? Now, after much discussion, she elected to go for surgery and as a consequence of that had a good symptomatic response, still has some residual symptoms requiring therapy, but actually her main problem postoperatively has been recurrent atrial fibrillation. Illustrating this important point that septal reduction therapy is a great treatment for obstructive symptoms, but it doesn't modify the underlying substrate of disease. And I think it's that underlying modification of the substrate, which is really the the frontier in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's a very exciting frontier we're now moving into. What this slide shows are some of the approaches being explored to management of obstruction using novel surgical techniques, but really interestingly, novel drugs. Novel small small molecules which can reduce contractility, improve symptoms and have been shown in randomized trials to improve other markers of disease severity and perhaps to cause some degree of reverse remodeling. And of course, really excitingly looking forward are gene therapies. You know, is it possible for us to imagine a scenario where we could actually correct the underlying genetic abnormality that causes the disease and effect a cure for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? It's only going to be a very exciting time over the next five years as we roll out these new therapies for patients with this disease. So in summary, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a relatively common disease. Its diagnosis is at one level simple. Listen to the patient, examine the patient, use the tools that you have available to you in the clinic, the ECG and the echocardiogram to make that initial diagnosis. But then increasingly, it's going to be important to think about why does this person have a thick heart? Because as we develop new therapies that are targeted at etiology, this is going to become the cornerstone, I think, of the diagnosis of this disease. So thank you for joining us um, for these two talks on the recognition and diagnosis and management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And we look forward to seeing you at future talks on this and other heart muscle diseases. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.